This episode is supported by ArcIT and Twinmotion. You'll hear more about both of them later in the show. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. In this episode, I'm joined by Federico Negro. Federico is the CEO of Canoa. He's a designer and product strategist focused on growth and product direction. And before introducing what Canoa is, let's begin with their why, also known as their vision. From their website, we represent a new generation of designers, technologists, psychologists, data scientists, and more that are bound by a responsibility to reject a broken status quo, one that doesn't represent our values, and bring ingenuity, research, and healthy practices to an industry that is anything but. Lowering the barrier for people to access healthier environments is why we are starting this company. So with that then, exactly what is Canoa? Canoa is the first end-to-end design and construction platform for fast, adaptive, low-carbon commercial retrofits. Our membership-based model is designed for fast-growing businesses, property managers, and operators who manage or are scaling large portfolios of commercial real estate. We definitely get into that inside the episode. Also on their homepage, they've definitely drawn a line in the sand, maybe maybe many lines in the sand. They say, our cities are changing. Technology and a global pandemic have littered the American landscape with empty office towers, shopping malls, urban retail corridors, hotels, and parking garages. Yet most of us still lack access to healthy, walkable, and affordable places to work, play, and learn. Adapting and modernizing our existing building stock is key to achieving these goals. It's time to finally leave the 20th century behind. It's time to rebuild. And I put a little bit of emphasis on the rebuild because so many architects out there think that the answer is always a new building. We also talk about that in this episode. So there's a lot to chew on there. And as if you didn't expect it, they're also a pending B Corp, and B Corps take time. And if you don't know what they are, I highly suggest that you look it up. Oh, and there's also a manifesto published on their site, like you couldn't see that coming. I love it. So without further ado, I bring you Federico Negro. Federico, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you here. Thank you so much for, for having me. I'm a big fan of the show, actually for some time. I think it's, it's, it's an amazing series that you've put together. So, so thanks for having me for sure. Yeah, thank you. I think our, our paths recently crossed on the Future Perfect Twitter. What are those things called? Yeah, like <laughs> the live the, the, the live the section clubhouse of equivalent. Yes. yes, exactly. The clubhouse <laughs> copy. And, and we were talking about about some really interesting stuff there, and and I I know you were having some kind of audio problem on there about yeah. about connecting, but I think that was Twitter's fault more than anything. We started to hear in that, which is not a recorded thing, so nobody could listen to it, but about kind of what you guys are up to at Kanoa, and I would love before we get into what your guys your vision is with Kanoa in particular, I would love to hear kind of how you got to that point or to this point, I should say. So, so look, going back a bit, actually it's my birthday tomorrow. So I, I, I've been a little bit reminiscent. I, t- I turned 41 
And I, I, I often think back about how I got to where, to where I am. And I, I'll, I'll go way back for a moment because I, I think it is important. Uh, it's something that I hold really high in high regard. So I, I, I was born in South America and I grew up there up until my teenage years. Uh, we moved around a ton because of my dad's job. So I lived in several countries in Latin America, Uruguay and Argentina and Venezuela at different times throughout the 80s and into the mid-90s. And then in the mid-90s, I moved to suburban Chicago, again, because of my, my father's uh, job. And I finished high school there. And then I moved on to, to go to architecture school. So I did an undergrad in architecture in Illinois. And then I, and this is where sort of things get a little bit interesting uh, for me. Like I, I, I think I always had a really tough time kind of staying put in one place geographically. I think it wasn't until I got to New York that I finally found a place that I, that I, could, I think could stay at for, for a while but through my undergrad, I ended up in Europe. I, I, I did a, a semester abroad uh, studying architectural history in Italy. And then through that, I met somebody who was doing excavations in Greece. And so I almost completely pivoted into archaeology. I did two summers working in, 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 on the sites in Greece and, and, and doing reports and, you know, and drawings and documentation for our digs and then into the government. And, and I just loved it. I loved being in the field. I loved that connection to like, you know, being outside in space and how, you know, how really the, the built environment came to be. And then I, I decided to, my undergrad was quite technical. And so I decided to go into design school. So I moved to New York for that. That's where I got my MARC. I went to, I went to Parsons. And the reason why I chose that, that school was because they were one of the only schools that had this design build program. You know, I, I was looking for something that was very hands-on and not theoretical on purpose. Mm-hmm. I wanted to build, I wanted to make, I wanted, like, I really loved that connection to craft. And I just happened to also be going into grad school, especially in New York in the early 2000s. Actually, I moved here, we, my class was the 9-11 class. And so I moved here just after, you know, just a few months after. And it was a time when robotics was really making its way into, into our schools, into architecture. And so I had the benefit of coming into practice and this like, technophiliac era of time, you know, my teachers were like early shop partners and other people like that, that, you know, they had just finished Dunescape at PS1. There's this like real sort of love for like this sort of like passion for technology, not in, in like from efficiency perspectives on these things, but like the types of design that it could enable. And so I, I came out of school in that. And I actually found a really interesting passion right at that moment where like, you know, technology, design, and making all sort of came together. And so directive fabrication workflows, let's call them, really became kind of a, a really early interest of mine. And so that's how I began to blend technology and, and design and being out in the field. So I, I ended up working at shop. That's where I got my start, to, uh, you know, pretty early on in shop's career or shop's sort of arch of growth as well. And it was amazing. We were, you know, we were a bunch of like, you know, kids led by some really strong partners with big ideas. And we were just trying to like make a name for ourselves and technology was the way in which we were doing it. And so we got to do lots of cool stuff and probably got way more responsibility than we should have <laughs> based on the experience we had. But we also learned that way. And one of those opportunities, which, which um, I, I wanted to get to because it, it is fundamental in the, in the inception of Kanoa is that one year as we were doing uh, competitions for, for Tulane University down in New Orleans, Katrina hit. And 
there was a, a woman, a donor that was enabling that competition. She was donating uh, the money for this new building to be built on campus. And she, you know, we were, it was us and Beer Happel, we were doing this partnership, uh, you know, this JV and the competition and Katrina hits and, and immediately she calls us up. She calls up the folks at shop with the partners. And she's like, look guys, like there's been a direct hit on my hometown, my childhood hometown, which is actually a small town called uh, Delil, uh, Mississippi just north of New Orleans. And everybody that I know locally is out of commission. You guys are in New York. What can we do? Can you guys help? She's quite wealthy. And so she literally sent a plane. She sent her private plane to New York, to Teterboro Airport. And myself and, you know, and the, the partners came out and was like, hey, like, is anybody willing to, you know, to go down here? And myself and my friend Reese Campbell, who are, we're both, you know, only a year into our careers or something, he had been he had made his way into architecture by oddly enough working for the DOT in Alaska and in, and in uh, and in Utah for the Olympics he had built been building highways like he was a laborer and like found himself in architecture school so like Shab was also this really odd mix of people you had like your GSD grads and then like a bunch of us who were not really <laughs> didn't really have like the most let's say direct um, ways of getting there. But anyway, so Reese and I looked at each other like this is like we want to help. We want to we want to uh, go. And so we we went downstairs. We were on Park Place at the time, and there was a hardware store nearby. So we went to we ran into that hardware store. We packed up because we knew that there was no power. We we bought like five or six duffel bags and filled them with hand tools and everything that that was battery operated and took a car went straight to the airport jumped in and and we flew over and honestly and you know and then we 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 landed it was nighttime there was no power for miles and miles and miles on we spent the next you know weeks and months there living on site in a FEMA trailer trailer I came back early Reese stayed actually for much longer than I did we cleared a whole. Swath of land. We worked with the army CBs. We did all of this stuff and like, and built a community center over the next, you know, say 12 months or so. But more so than that, I got to see firsthand what disaster relief looks like. Mm. And I got to see firsthand what like the beginnings of, of, you know, what I began to associate with climate change really looked like. And, mm. and it was, it was enraging. It was incredible. It was sad. It was like all of these things together, all put to it. Like the emotions were just through the roof uh, every single day. And so, so anyway, so that, it, that's at the time, I didn't really understand how it was going to sort of mark my career, but we came back, you know, we, we were happy that we were able to build a community center in the scheme of things. It probably did very little. It gave the community a place to, to meet, which I think was fantastic, but realistically, you know, all those people obviously needed much more, much more help than we could give, but we, we tried to do something which, which we were both proud of, but also incredibly sad that we couldn't do more. So it was definitely, a, you know, a double-edged or like a bittersweet experience from that perspective. Anyway, we came back, we kept working. I, you know, kept sort of like working on projects and doing things. My friend Steve always likes to say that I was one of the lucky people at shop that was always working on a project that was actually under construction and not any of the millions of projects that unfortunately didn't really get built. And so I had a really interesting career from that perspective because I was always building something. I did very little work in the abstract. And, and maybe that also goes to my skill set. I'm not sure, but I, you know, but I really enjoyed that. And then, yeah. And then look in 2008, after five years of having been there uh, myself and uh, Steve Sanderson and Dave Fano, which we were all there, we, we, we decided to, to break off and start case. We were young, we were in our, in our late twenties and really just had this like passion for how, you know, technology, we, we could see it how technology could potentially like really significantly impact our industry. And we could see it because 
that's what we were pitching every day at shop. It was like the real differentiator was our, our DFMA, our design to fabrication uh, processes and, and the whole thesis of being involved, you know, way deeper into construction and to means and methods. And you typically would be and all of that. And so, so if it could, if it could build a company as successful as shop was becoming, what could we do with the rest of the industry? And we were just, you know, immensely, immensely, immensely sort of, uh, let's say big eyed about, about that opportunity. And so we started case as an agency model, really that where we would come in and consult to build bespoke workflows, integrations, technology, education, and even in some cases come in and be part of, of, of project teams for, for folks. And that, you know, that, that lo and behold, kind of did really well by most measures. We grew over the, the following the ensuing uh, seven or eight years to about 65 people spread all around the world. We were actually a remote. We were, the company was 60% remote, 40% not remote. So we were already sort of like in that world because we had, you know, we were big believers that for us to get the best talent um, in technology in AEC that we couldn't just focus in New York City, that we had to go anywhere. And so we had people in like Nebraska and San Francisco and South America and Korea and London. And like, it just, it was a mix and we would come together, you know, two or three times per year as we could. And we obviously had an office in New York, but we, we had that culture already of being able to sort of really leverage, you know, a lot of the talent that exists all over the world, which is amazing. So anyway, to, to, to kind of bring that story to fruition, like, by the end of it, we, we'd started with consulting mostly to architects and engineers and builders. And we had found really our, our scaling uh, customer in the operator. It was the owner side, but it wasn't just any owner. It was an owner who saw real estate as a top line, what we call like what we would call a top line driver as opposed to a bottom line cost center, if you will. So, you know, retailers, people like Apple retail, for example, like they, they need the real estate to push their product, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not a facility cost. Like you're, you're having a completely different conversation, a very strategic conversation with people who use real estate as part of their top line. You're, you're talking to CEOs, you're talking to chief growth officers, you're talking to chief marketing officers. You're not talking to, let's say the people who are just counting the pennies, which is always, which is, which is a fundamental part of the industry, but it's a much harder sell, right? Like, it, but like sure. there's, $100,000 proposal for us to write some software for Apple was nothing, right? Versus to do it for a project that was, you know, maybe under construction that like, you know, that, that $100,000 meant a lot uh, yeah. in the scheme of things to somebody else. You know, one of the folks that, one of the clients that we saw grow just alongside us was WeWork that saw real estate as a top line driver. And so they ended up, we worked with them for a couple of years. We, we developed this internal tool called Stargate that they used to do their rollout. And that tech was all ours. All of that IP was ours. So we retained everything. And it got to the point where they were scaling and scaling and scaling. And they just, you know, in 2015, they ended up acquiring us. So I don't want to necessarily go into the whole WeWork story, but what was interesting was that we did one thing right, which was that we retained IP, an IP that was transferable and that was really valuable. And so that made us uh, an acquisition target. And the second thing I'll say is that it, it, Going into WeWork then, it really exposed us to what I call productization, which for me is really important. There's a lot of talk right now about sort of like vertically integrated this and vertically integrated that. Really, the core of it was, can you deliver, can you deliver space more like a product as opposed to a service? And that really ended up sort of defining, I think, a lot of the thinking we have today, which is, which is that in order for us to have really, really, really good what I would call mass market experiences, not uniqueness, like unique and inspiration, all of that. Our industry does that really well. Yeah. And we should continue to do that. 
But we have failed and we continue to fail in providing what I would call mass market solutions that are both great and also affordable. Failed to scale. <laughs> failed to scale in a very, very, very significant way. And so for all of WeWork's problems and all of that, I think what we got, what we were able to do, what we really got exposed to was to, we had, a, we had an amazing platform to experiment to say which parts we should insource, which parts we should outsource, what can we productize, what can we standardize, what we, what we should not, what we should, et cetera, et cetera. All the way to the point that over, you know, over our tenure there, which was only, my, I was only there for four years. We built something like 600, 600 buildings in that, in that time. We re- renovated 600 buildings during that time. And we dropped our cost by 60% during that same period of time. And we also really improved the the quality of the product during that same time. And we were doing it about 35 to 40% faster than we were doing it when we were starting off. Right. And so of course, that would have been impossible if you guys weren't like the serial builder type, like like most owners are not in that position. Correct. And so, and so we, so I, I, I learned both at case and then really at WeWork that what's what in our industry would traditionally be called multi-unit design, which is one design, multiple times, multiple locations, the retail model, really what Disney invented uh, or McDonald's invented, you know, a hundred years ago is, and, and, and has been obviously tremendously used in hospitality and in retail and in F and B ad nauseum forever and ever and ever. We just said, Hey, why don't we do that for workplace for space? Yeah. And that was really the only innovation, you know, that like, I'd say the biggest innovation that we were brought to the table, it wasn't technology. It wasn't this, it wasn't that. It was just simply that we say, Hey, like, we can build workplace in the way we built retail and we might actually be able to do that really well. Like mm. we might be able to actually provide a better experience faster at a lower cost. And we can, we can get all three legs of the stool if we really sort of like standardize this process and standardize our product offering. So, so anyway, I, I, I tell that storyline because, you know, fast forward, I left WeWork in 2018. I was like, okay, cool. You know, this machine is, is out there. It's working. I'm going to go take some time off. I, I, you know, through shop, which was very much in startup mode when I was working there through case, which was very much in startup mode all the way that I was there through WeWork, which is very much in like hyper growth mode. I, I had spent 15, 16, 17 years effectively, like just not stopping, right? Like mm-hmm. just build, 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 build. And I, and I needed a break. Um, you know, the burnout is very real. I, I, I very much got to that point. I had some health issues. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to take a pause for a moment. Um, and so as I took a pause and I was, you know, mostly uh, working on myself and getting some help and, and trying to get healthy again, I, I began to obviously think about what I wanted to do next. And, and this is really where, you know, the, the genesis of Kanoa is this, is that I said, okay, well, I must, I, I can no longer continue to design in this world without directly addressing climate. Like, I just can't. Like, it, it's just, I can't look back 10, 20 years from now. I did this exercise where I said, like, if I'm 60 or 70 or 80 and I want to look back on my career, what do I want to be proud of? Hmm. Even if I completely failed, what do I want to be proud of having tried? And, I, and for me, I was like, okay, I need to be able to design better, not because it looks cooler or nicer or whatever, like, not aesthetically better. Hmm scientifically better from a materials perspective in what we take from the earth and then what we get back from, what we give back to it. Second is productization. And I said, okay, can we, if productization works, if multi-unit works, can, and, and WeWork did not have a strong sustainable, you know, basis at all, other than the fact that we were retrofitting older buildings, like 
everything we put into it was very traditional. There's no, you know, other than there was an intent to like for the whole company to go vegan and those kinds of things. Like I, I like that was all, you know, very shallow and like a very honest perspective. Like our product was not, you know, had not gotten to those, to those levels. And so after, when I look back at everything, I said, okay, I, I believe we can build a product where you don't have to go to a client and sell them on sustainability like that. We're just never going to get there if we try to do that. Right. Like right. I think we just need to practice in a different way. Mm-hmm. And the way in which we're going to do that is by having a product and the product is this, and you can either buy it or you don't buy it, right. but there's no other product. There's no like, Hey, can we shift that? Mush that? Oh, no, I like that you have recyclable, but I really like plastic. Like, no, like this is our product and this is what it is. And so I began to look at a lot of models in other industries and what other people were doing. And, and that became, you know, that became this amazing, you know, that became this sort of amazing discovery, but there's dozens and dozens or hundreds or potentially even thousands of models out there of other industries that are sort of reinventing themselves with a, what I would call like a, like a, like a much more ecologically conscious perspective, right? Like, People still sell shoes, but can you do that better? People mm-hmm. still need groceries, but can you do that better? People still need, you know, all kinds of, you know, like even cars, but can you do that better? It's like, okay, well, so for me, it was like, I, I, cre- I, I finally realized in my career that I went from what I thought we were doing at Case and Shop, which was, hey, maybe we can change the industry, to me saying, well, the industry doesn't need changing at all. Leave the industry alone. I just need to change myself. Like I just need to, I just need to make a better building. I need to make a better space. And then hopefully we just sell a bunch of that and that's good. And that's, and I'm going to be happy with that. And, and my customers are going to be happy with that. And our team is going to be happy with that. And what the industry at large does or doesn't do, you know, like it's hard to change it from the inside. And so I was like, I kind of stopped this thinking that like, you know, technology and all this stuff and education, like all this stuff is really important. Um, there's much better people out there to do that stuff. I was like, I just want to go make a better building. I just want to go make a better experience. And that's where I want to, you know, and that's where I want to go next. And, and so that's really the genesis of Canela. It's like, can we productize space? Can we do it effectively by using uh, technology? And can we make it low cost enough so that it's, so that it becomes a product that is, that, that truly can be mass market. So, so, you know, if somebody comes in and says, Hey, I have 500 bucks a square foot to spend in this really fancy space. Like, we turn them away today. Like we're, we're not going to do that because we don't, we don't do custom work. We want to do this, like, you know, like we have to figure out this, this, this other tier and this other layer. And so that to us is, you know, that this is, sorry about the long winded, the sort of long winded storyline, but that's, that's the arch for me that became, you know, that became really responsible. We still want to make things, but we want to make things that, that impact and touch a lot of people. And we want to do it. We want to try to do it really effectively. It, it- there's so many directions I would, I want to go with this. I would love to go back and talk about kind of where you got before, where you came from before you went to architecture school, because I bet you were a very different student than a lot of the other students there because (laughs) coming from South America, coming from the, the ancient cities that you got to experience versus the suburbs, which I think, you know, most people, most architecture students in North America are probably coming from, maybe they're coming from an urban area, but even that it doesn't even compare as we were talking pre-show about kind of their architectural experiences that they had as far as how far back that architecture goes and how long it's lasted versus mm. what maybe you experienced. I just think that that's an interesting point. I don't think it, it really went into any, anything else that I wanted to talk to you about, but I thought it, it might be worth saying that's a really interesting point of view. And I think one thing that I see as a common thread for you is this kind of high level of experience and doing and hands-on nature that you have 
the relationship that you have with the built environment is very different from somebody who sits at a, de- at a desk and just draws it and then passes it along to the next group of people. I, I, I really connect with that myself as well. Like I want to make the things I want to build the things too. And I think it's such an important part of understanding the built environment, understanding how it goes together, understanding how it sequences, understanding how it gets used in the final experience with that. It's all so intertwined for some people, and I really see that in in the story that you told, and and how important that is to you. It, it just makes me think of so many examples of like why my shop is the favorite my favorite spot in the whole place. Right? It's like yeah. that's where I want to be. But then I start to think about this inflection point that you had. You like you went through this crazy, fast paced growth through ser- a serial kind of nature. You shop to case to we work to you know and it and it was like like you said like you needed a break mm-hmm. and it was during that break that this inflection point happened where you mm-hmm. did kind of look back and start to connect dots and see the problems that you were observing and trying to figure out a path forward. How important was that time away for that to happen? Do you think it would have happened if you didn't take time off? If you didn't take the time to work on yourself and to kind of heal and to do all those things or because I, I kind of feel like that that whole you know I hate to say work-life balance but but it's hard to kind of get the, a different perspective when you're always in the driver's seat you know did you have to get out of that to to even come up with this idea of Kanoa I did I did because I I was I I found myself mentally and physically blank I had gotten to the point where I, I had lost meaning, I think, to a degree with the day-to-day of, of what I was doing. I was running a department that was many hundreds of people across all of A&E and art and graphics and technology and robotics and all of this stuff across the world. We had nine studios globally. It was like, I, I, you know, my, my department was like almost a thousand people by the time I left. I, my job wasn't creative anymore. My job was, was very bureaucratic. It was very... It, I was most of the time in spreadsheets, like looking at future years' budgets and how are we going to do this and how are we going to do that, and and to some degree trying to optimize the product. But but even then, I had a whole product development team, and so even my involvement in that became really minimal. And I and I would say even that would have been fine. But and this is where now leadership at WeWork does come into play. Is that the even though I think we had done amazing things, the the requirements or the objectives just got crazier and crazier and crazier Mm -hmm. for the wrong reasons. So I remember it as it was was yesterday. I I was talking to somebody on my my San Francisco team and our West Coast team who told me this anecdote about them driving down the highway and them seeing on the side of the road and recognizing one of our chairs, one of our task chairs, one of our WeWork chairs. And I just, and it gutted me because we, because, because here I was, you know, the connection to making was 100% there because we made all of the WeWorks, right? We had a construction department. We had a t- tremendous investment in prefabrication. We had, we had, we built this stuff. We had a design build firm inside of a product company. And even though we still use GCs and we still outsource all this stuff, but like, but it was us, right? Like we were managing this whole process and all of the FFNE purchasing was centralized, right? We didn't buy by project. We bought portfolio wide, right? Which unlocked tremendous savings and all these kinds of things. And even us, 
at, at a scale of many hundreds of millions of dollars a year in purchasing, even we had a hard time with traceability, mm. with, with true sort of documentation about material content and all of these kinds of things. And so before I knew it, I was like, well, wait a minute. It's cool that we're building, I don't know, we're doing 20 million square feet a year of retrofits, but what are we putting out into the world and how responsible are, are we of it? And so the connection at WeWork was actually really interesting because we operated all of our own buildings, right? It's, it's not that we built it and we went away. If, if, you know, buildings we had opened years earlier, we were still under our operations. And so if we need to refresh something or change something or whatever, even change a lock or change a color that somebody didn't like, we got all of those complaints and all those Zendesk tickets kept coming back to us. And so I love that, that very, very tangible connection to post-occupancy. Even the concept of post-occupancy for me was crazy. So I loved all of that, but I wasn't loving what we were putting out into the world. And I, and I stopped to, and, and it became, it didn't, at some point it, it became really hard for me to identify why we were doing it. Like what the growth for growth's sake became a, became a significant issue. If we didn't, you know, I was trying to sort of tether in things about sustainability or this and that, but like, it, it just wasn't, it wasn't sort of catching, you know, and then the pressure was tremendous. Like we were, you know, we had to show the market and investors that, that all of this stuff could be done. And so, so yeah, so burnout, the burnout was real. We, you know, I was on a plane all the time from like Japan to San Francisco, to India, to Argentina, to New York. I wasn't seeing my family. I developed, I don't speak about this too, too much, but I, I developed claustrophobia, which I, which I never had before. And all of a sudden I was an architect that had claustrophobia. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, I, and I couldn't get into an elevator to go walk a site. Wow. Right. And so we would go and go like in the middle of Shenzhen to go like up a construction elevator to go walk a new site. And I couldn't, I had to walk up the stairs. And everybody looked at me like I'm crazy. I was like, well, I'll walk the 30 floors. I, it is what it is, right? right? And so, and so, and then finally it dawned on me that all of these things were connected. And I was like, well, wait a minute. This is, my body is telling me something that my mind is maybe not ready to, to, to accept yet and admit yet. And so finally, after seeking obviously, you know, help and, and talking to some, to some people, I was like, you know what? I think it's, I think I've, by any measure, I think I've done what I came to do here and the machine is working. So it's, it's time for somebody else to come in and, and sort of run this thing. And I, I need to go back and, and, and sort of take care of myself. The very, the very direct answer to your question is no, like what I'm doing today would not have been possible had I not stopped because had I not gotten sick, had I not been burnt out, I, I probably would have continued to, you know, like the pay was really good the the job was always interesting there was always some like really amazing opportunity to come through to come through our desks um the team was incredible and so like there was always something to keep you there and so i think if i hadn't stopped and really looked around and really considered where i was i could have easily spent another 10 years there just continuing to do what i was doing and not to say that that was wrong but i just don't think it was right for me this episode of troxel podcast is made possible by twin motion what if you could visualize your building in a couple of clicks, remove months from the design process, or create a bridge between stakeholders to solve problems before they even come up? Our friends at Twinmotion offer simple, real-time visualization for architects. Their technology lets you view and edit your scene on the go in the same pixel-perfect quality as the final rendering. Twinmotion seamlessly integrates with other tools like SketchUp and Revit, transforming your BIM or CAD models into high-quality images, panoramas, VR videos, or presentations. Sound complicated? Well, 
What if I told you that Twinmotion enables anyone to present the biggest ideas in the easiest way possible, regardless of previous CG experience? To download your exclusive free trial, head to twinmotion.link slash trxl. That's twinmotion.link, not .com, .link slash trxl. And ArcIT. A common misconception that comes up when talking about technology and actually IT in particular is the thought that hiring a specialized company to help you with that is an expensive undertaking. And actually, the opposite is often true, especially with a company like ArcIT, because they only work within our industry and they have the expertise and know how to run IT for your business for a very reasonable price. In fact, they are honest and transparent with their pricing, and you can find it right on their website. And you can check that out at getarcit.com slash pricing. So as business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. I know that I've had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills. Not pleasant. ArcIT, however, is a very different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms. And their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack and they won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine that with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, and solid disaster recovery and backup solutions. That's something that everybody should be thinking of, honestly. And enterprise-grade security management. And yet, above all, these are just table stakes for a solid IT company. ArcIT goes a step further. They become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. So all of this sounds expensive, right? Nope. Because ArcIT is highly specialized for our industry, their pricing is on par or in some cases even lower than other IT providers. ArcIT is transparent and even publishes the pricing right on their website. Uh, Speaking of their website, there's also something else you should check out when you're there, and that is their Design Under Influence blog and video series. Again, adding value to IT-type solutions across industry, all good stuff. So your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to my friends at ArcIT for a free consultation. So go to GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com, arc like architecture in the middle, and click work with us. So thanks very much to ArcIT for sponsoring this episode of the Troxel podcast. And now let's get back to our conversation. It seems to me like the, the sustainability pull, pull that you you have, kind of just part of your nature, is really what's driving what you're doing now at, at Kanoa. I mean, you're talking about productizing space, but you're talking about doing it in a different way than I think most people think about productizing space. You're thinking about it from a reuse standpoint, not only in, in the products that you use, but in the types of modularity and the spaces that you're dealing with. I would love for you to get more into kind of now the, the bigger vision of what is the bigger vision for Kanoa and, and why is that so important to you and your team? Because obviously you're attracting people who have a similar, you know, pull as well. Sure. Yeah. So look, um, the vision for me is really simple. I believe there are certain subsets of our industry that will function more as a product in the future than as pure services. And I believe that consumer 
demand for transparency and information, our spaces, our air quality, and the materials, the stuff that surrounds us is only going to go up and up and up and up. Can we pause right there for a second? Because I, I think that that is a huge driver for so many things nowadays because of the internet and because of mm-hmm. the availability of data. Clients are demanding this progression upon of our industry, of our profession, mm-hmm. which I don't think a lot of architects are used to or comfortable with. So that that's a very interesting development that I think has only been enabled maybe in the last 10 plus years, but it's it's very real. And I, and I still think there's a lot of people fighting against that, but it, but because people can shop for things on their mobile device and they can look things up and they can get like the data is plentiful. It's all, it's everywhere all the time. And, and because of that empowerment of the consumer, of the client, of the customer, it's, it's a very real thing that our profession has to deal with. A hundred percent. I, I, I think we, we like to say internally that the 20th, 20th century was about the stuff, the cities, the cars, the buildings, the 21st century is shaping up to really be about the human. Mm-hmm. You know, after some basic things get, get you know, things like, like shelter and food and, you know, like all the basics that we need be, become or have been achieved, the, the next tier of that, you, you have to ask yourself is like, okay, has that been achieved for everybody? The answer is no. And, and two, you know, can it be like at to what degree, to what level has it been achieved? And so for, for, for us, for us, the, the, you know, I, we're not big believers that, oh, like the industry is going to be like, look, if you're really good at super talls, there's still going to be demand for that. And sure. super talls are unique by nature, right? Mm-hmm. Like even just from a, from spe- very specific geographic constraints and wind and everything else, if you're really good at what I would call like inspiration architecture, museums, memorials, those kinds of things, that's still going to continue to operate the way it is. But things like single-family housing, multifamily housing, workspaces have to be productized. Not because it's a better business or it's not a better business. It's because the rate of change and the expectations of the consumer are are speeding up so much that the traditional design bid-build methodology just can't keep up. Not only can it not keep up, you can't guarantee the level of transparency and information that people are asking for. And you're like, well, you know, means and methods are not part of our responsibility, or this is not like, I don't really know what, you know, if, if your CO2 levels are too high, then it's like, that's an operations problem. It's like, we just can't do that anymore in certain types of spaces. You just have to know. right? Right. And so, and so, Oh, I didn't know that, you know, you know, anything that's behind this wall, I have no idea what's in it. Like, like, we all know that there's good architects out there who obviously go to that level of detail and do those things well. But still, like the, the reality is that once you've given away the keys, once the keys have been hand, handed over, that we have very little, sort of very little control, very little ability to sort of like project. And so the core thesis on our business model, not our mission, but our business model is that we believe that design as a transaction in these types of sectors is going away. And design as an always-on subscription service is in. Relationship, yeah. Correct. And yeah. so what we do is we tether ourselves into a building, into a floor plate, and we stay with it. This is, what, this is what my lesson from WeWork. So we enable tenant experience, mm-hmm. and we work on tenant experience with the sustainability overlay. But we know that if we're not there, we can't help you. Yeah. We can't help you well enough. So what we said is, 
Well, let's change our model. Right. And let's let's stay there. Let's stay behind. Let's open a space. And then I want to hear all of your complaints. Yeah, you, you're basically until end of life. You're basically designing an operating system for the that, right. that you're going to push continuous updates to. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. And so something's not working. Let's fix it. Right. And I shouldn't have to send you another proposal for that. Well, and and not only that, but I think the business model and we talked about this on this show before can incorporate that kind of relationship so that it's you're incentivized to make the thing run better over the long haul instead of just turning over the keys and saying your problem now or see you later you know like there there's a totally new way to think about this in the interaction and the continued interaction over time and i think with other technological advances like streaming music as an analogy to this right it's like mm-hmm. things don't have to be build by the hour. You don't have to have a separate contract for each little job. It can just be an agreement that's ongoing and you can divide it up into the smallest chunks imaginable and they spray out over the network and I receive them. Sometimes I receive them and sometimes I'm sending them. And I think that that is a more analogous to the type of relationship that you're describing with your tenants. It's like something doesn't work. Let's fix it. Let's make it better. Let's make it perfect for you. And, and realizing that Somebody who comes later might have different requirements than you, but we're going to be here to service them as well. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And 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 I'll I'll just add proactive spatial user experience very often does not translate to a physical solution. Mm-hmm. Right, doesn't very often does be, not translate. Yeah. Doesn't have to be architecture. Right, right? and so and so totally. so part of what we're doing is also saying we want to we want to de incentive ourselves from constantly having it sell hard costs. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because sometimes I love Lance is always sort of tweeting about this, but like sometimes coming into a space and salvaging 50% of it, if we were, if we were doing a traditional percentage on hard cost fee, we would be incentivized to actually take all that stuff down and put a bunch of new stuff in. Sure. And that's just not right for the planet. It's right. like, this stuff is fine. It has another 10 years of life. Fantastic. Keep it. And so our, our, we wanted to create a model that incentivized us to deploy as little mass into the world as possible. Yeah. That, and, and, we, and we actually model it that way. Like our kits of parts, one of the objectives, one of our KPIs is weight. Mm. Like how much weight are we deploying out into the world and how much mass are we deploying out into the world? And the reason for that is because not only do we have to ship it and do it, but also because, because, it's a really simple, measurable thing. It's physical, right? Like it's like it's like it's basic physics. It's say, hey, if you had, I don't know, a fire main, a sprinkler main that is roughly in the right location, or you have a main, you know, duct trunk trunk that is roughly in the right location, let's make our design sort of flexible enough to to repurpose that and Work to just it. keep it in place as opposed yeah. to having to, you know, have like this, this desire for perfection. And by the way, people are like, oh, why? But like then like, you're doing it wrong. It's like, no, no. It's because I know, and we have the data, and we saw this through WeWork, and we've seen this in, because in, WeWork had this, this, had its own spaces, but we also had this product called Power by We, where we went to other people's spaces and started to productize their space. We saw it. We, we like to think in the office world today that we build these spaces and they're going to be there for 10, 15 years. They won't. In as little as two years, people begin to knock down walls. Wow. And as little as five years, people begin to actually do complete renovations of those spaces. And so we build 
thinking that there's a life cycle expectancy that is much long, that there's a shelf life expense expectancy that's much larger or longer than we think because we want to do a good job for them. Yeah. But they will demo this stuff. Yeah. They will literally throw it in the garbage and then do something else with that space. And at the rate of change that technology is having in organizational design where people, you know, you don't, you no longer have it on one floor and accounting on the next floor. You now have teams that are just constantly sort of like stood up and turned down, stood up and turned down. And that has, an, has a physical effect, has a manifestation in our physical space around us. And so our physical space is, is it, we need to know more about it, what it's made of. We also need to make it more flexible, more, more you know, less hard-coded, if you will. Right. Otherwise, it's going to get demoed because no one, like most people will not see it as enough of an impediment for them to knock, knock down a wall if it's going to get in the way of their teams to do their job. And so, so they'll knock it down. And so if we know that those, that those people are going to be doing all this demo, let's not build something that we think is going to last for 15 years. Let's, let's think about it differently and maybe make it more modular, make it designed for reusability, designed for, uh, you know, let's use knockdown systems, let's design systems that actually have in, like that still, the asset itself can still last a long time, but let's imagine that it has to actually have one, two, three different lifetimes before it finally meets its end of life, as opposed to just thinking that it's built in place, it's wet applied, and it's either this or it dies. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, it, I want to go back for a minute to talk about your this idea of transaction versus relationship. Something. This is a lesson that I learned working for Apple, of all places, that they really solidified for me. And it was their model, the way that they thought about their sales of their computers and their Apple stores was very different from how anybody else was doing it. And at the time, so this was a while ago, their their main competitor was Best Buy. And of course, Best Buy also sold Apple computers, but they didn't sell them how they wanted them to be sold. They, they wanted to create relationships with people. And so they very distinctly said, and I think this applies to architecture, so love or hate Apple doesn't matter. I think the the analogy still applies. It's that they say, when you buy a computer at Best Buy, it's a transaction. It's over. The relationship is over as soon as you buy the thing and you walk out the door. When you buy a computer at Apple, it's the beginning of a relationship. And the way that they ex- back that up was they say, okay, now we're going to offer classes. Obviously, we have the Genius Bar for support. There's all of these different ways that they engage people to make sure that they're, number one, using the product, but also understanding its potential and helping people get into that. So that they made stuff with their product and not just stuck it on a shelf like it was some impulse buy. And obviously people do that with computers they buy no matter where they come from. But there they were basically seeing themselves as enablers through education, through support, through all of those other means. And I think that that applies to architecture in the way that you're talking about, where you're talking about operating a space and upgrading its OS over time and the functionality and the flexibility it's, it is a relationship that you then have for the long term, and it's, it's much more of a sustainable business built on the, the other aspects of sustainability that you're talking about. And I think that that's a really important idea that a lot more architects need to be exploring than, than the number who actually are just holding on to that, that old model of transactional architecture. Yeah, look, we think so. We think so. And and and. Yeah, you know, to your to your Apple example, the other thing that they were doing is that they were learning from their customers, right? Sure. Like 
this is this is the key, and this is sort of the key difference between sort of one-off designs versus product design. And 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 I love I love one-off design. Like, look, we've all walked into spaces that are so unique, and and it's their uniqueness that makes them unbelievable. But we also all walked into spaces that are that lack complete uniqueness and are crap, right? And so. I, you know, I, I, we always talk about how, how, you know, like our main methodology of practice today was, was really developed, let's say post-World War II. The world was two and a half billion people then, right? We're, we're going to get close to 10 soon in a couple of decades. And we've not been able to, like, as you said at the beginning, we've not been able to scale, right? Like mm-hmm. the demand for spatial designers in the world today is higher than it's ever been. Yeah. Somehow or another, somehow or another, we we still package all of our expertise into one hour chunks. And so what ends up happening is that the highest bidder for that hour ends up getting that benefit and everybody else gets outbid. Right. right. And so and so we're not here to judge the rest of the industry and how they're doing things. Again, like we're not here to change the industry. We just believe that, hey, wouldn't it be cool if you could also buy these highly productized things like single multifamily housing or office or even retail in the future in a different way. And so we're not doing single family housing or multifamily housing. There's other people that are doing that. And they're also doing these sort of uh, models. We're focused 100% on commercial, but it's like at some point, something becomes commoditized enough that you just need to be, you just need it to be really great. And it's, it's, you know, very few people work out of the, let's say the empire state. Okay. The empire state, make it unique, make it awesome. But most people don't work out of those types of spaces. So how can we give those people really great workspaces as well? But it is that connection, that stay behind, that is actually the majority of our revenue as opposed to the project in of itself. Mm-hmm. And it's that stay behind that also gives us the critical data to make that product better and better and better. Because right. the key in product development in general, no matter what type of product you're making, is that you want to have, you want to get to iteration 1000 of that same product as absolutely as fast as you can. Because iteration one is the worst one you'll ever make. Yeah. So you want to get to iteration two, to iteration three, to iteration four. And so the, the quicker you can get the first one out of the way, the better. I've heard in software development, like if, you, if, you, if you're not embarrassed by version one, you waited too long. Right? You waited too long. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> so get it out there and get embarrassed and, and have that thick skin like you developed in architecture school going through all these charrettes, right? And, yeah. and then iterate. Yeah. That's right. So can you give some examples of the types of things that you are doing with physical space and with products and, and with modularity and things, just to give everybody an idea of the type of work that you're engaged with at Kanoa? Yeah, sure. So, so our core offering today, which we'll be launching, like let's say in earnest later this year, is a combination of software and hardware for designing and deploying and managing what we call modular office spaces reconfigurable office spaces. And so we call it, you know, it's our, it's our first low carbon office. And the way that it works is that we effectively, so I'll, I'll talk about the, the, the hardware or the, the, let's call the physical side of the design for a second, and then I'll jump into the software and why it's important. Uh, but the physical side is really simple. We effectively sort of have borrowed from some theater design and some, some other types of, of, of parallel industries that do a lot of reconfigurations of space, like convention centers, things mm-hmm. like this that are constantly sort of changing. So what we do is we will go into a space we deploy this thing we call Canvas, which is effectively, that's an internal name, but it's effectively, it's, it's, uh, we do single air volume design as much as we can. We deploy an infrastructure Canvas that brings emergency lighting, life safety systems, HVAC systems equally in a gridded system throughout a whole space. And then just below that, 
everything floats, everything can float. So it's modular systems, offices, you know, conference rooms, classrooms, whatever it is, if you want it to be closed or you don't want it to be enclosed. And the idea is that this is 100% reconfigurable, but that all of these systems are deployed as products, meaning that, you know, we don't deploy a gypsum board, for example, right? Like why? Because it's not reusable. And so we, we, we buy as something that comes in a box that can be assembled and then it can be knocked down and disassembled and moved to its next location, or even just moved down 20 feet over in a future reconfiguration within the same space. And so, so it's very, it's, we, we like to say it's sort of take what was built on site in a traditional way and so a cellularized way in an office how much can we get away with doing that through like furniture systems and like furniturizing as much of this as possible or productizing as much of this as possible, you know, while only engaging like the traditional ways for, you know, for proper things like egress corridors and those kinds of things. And so, whereas before like 80% of an office would be built on site, 20% was FF&E. We like to say, what if we flipped that and it was 20% built on site and 80% FF&E that was fully reconfigurable. And so there's a lot of benefits to this. The biggest one of which is that cost where, where you know, early sort of cost studies put, are putting us in uh, well under 50% of sort of traditional build, mostly in the sense that we're not deploying, you know, a bunch of trades onto a floor that is offline for say three to six months uh, while all of this work is happening. We can, we can actually go from white box to a fully operational space in a few weeks and mostly it's being done through like, you know, high tech, like low voltage systems. A lot of installers, obviously still highly, you know, highly capable installation companies, but they're, they're mostly in installing products and technology as opposed to doing construction and cutting things and doing wet applied types of work on, 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 on site. So that's, that's, the, that's the sort of like, you know, that, that allows it because now it's products, it allows us to understand what the sort of traceability of a lot of these products are and where they come from and how they were made and what materials they have in them and what the certifications they have all in the same way that you would with sort of traditional trade or contract furniture. So that's, that's, you know, that's, let's say in a very simple way, that's, that's kind of like what the physical solution is. And it, and it comes with a, a software solution, which is, which is where we've been spending most of our time really since our fundraise in December which is effectively a, a design and physical UX platform that we call a tether because it tethers us to the space. So that anybody, so that, you know, we say like, we like to say every office manager, or building manager, or landlord has a login to this thing. They can see their life floor plan and we can communicate through this. And they say, hey, we want to reorganize this like top right corner of the space or hey, where you just hired somebody new, we need another private office. It's a C-level person. They're really important. They're, they're starting in two weeks. What can we do? And so that sort of flexibility is enabled by all of this stuff. And, we, and it tethers us to you know, one space and two space and three spaces. And before you know it, to many buildings or to many millions of square feet where we're sort of constantly in contact with the actual users of our spaces mm-hmm. that are giving us feedback as to what they like, what they don't like, what's changing, what they don't need to change. Um, which then, you know, so there's a, there's a plan view of this. It's all browser-based. It's not dependent on any sort of other technology. This is like the core tech we've built. But there's a, but really more importantly, there's a space management and inventory and asset management inventory system behind it. So the database really is that we know all your stuff, mm-hmm. all of your spaces and all your goods, all of your assets. And if you need to deploy new ones or if you need to get rid of old ones or if we need to do decommissioning or if we want to take some stuff from one space and put them in another space, 
the actual, like this is where the cir- circular economy component of all of this comes, is that we want to try to deploy as much reusable stuff because then we want to go pick it up. And then we want to redeploy it somewhere else. And that for us is another transaction because our business model is a subscription, but then we also take a flat fee on every transaction, every move in, move out, any change, all that stuff. We also take a little fee above and beyond that. And so we're trying to create a model where instead of having to sell a really big job that I'm going to have for five years, how can we sell thousands of little tiny jobs really effectively Mm -hmm. over time, over millions of square feet? Do you encourage them to tinker do you enable them to, to tinker within your, your platform or is it, is it you guys do that and then you show them the results of that? That's a great question. So we, we, I could see it being a double-edged sword for sure. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, um, so I'm all about them tinkering right now because of permissions and all that stuff is the, the, the platform is too early. Mm-hmm. So we're doing it, but I 100% want to go the route of them being like, at the very least being able to like annotate, comment, propose solutions. This becomes, it's like the researchers in our team, they think about like uh, somebody in, I don't know, like LA sending us a little sketch that they did on their platform of what they would like. And it's gold. It's, it's gold because it's, it's like, it's, it's in the past, you would have had to, you know, go there and do a workshop and do all of these things and move stuff. And like, it's like, if we can make this more fluid, we can help them improve their space and improve their, the stickiness of their space. And the, honestly, like the, the, the MPS scores, of course, but even just like the user experience, the spatial user sure. experience, transactionally at very, very minute little sort of increments. And our thesis is that that's going to make it stickier. And they're going to want to like, hopefully in the future, they think it was like, oh, we would never have an office without Kanoa mm-hmm. because how would we ever manage it? Um, how would we ever change it? How would we ever do this? And how would we ever do that? So we do think that there's a future where, where that tinkering becomes a fundamental part of all of this, 100%. Yeah, this is a problem for, you know, especially architects in the public sector, where you're, you're rarely ever dealing with the actual user of the space. You're dealing with layers in between of, you can call them whatever you want. So for some people, they're red tape for, you know, obviously they're helping make that project happen at the same time. So there's definitely the kind of like this buffer that you're dealing with, and they don't necessarily understand the actual clients of the space and their needs and what would make their job better, easier, uh, more sticky, as you put it. They, they have their own perceptions and experiences and bureaucracy. And there's so much in between there that architects are buffered from. And, and I think that that is a downside because what you're talking about is actually impacting the day-to-day of the people who actually use the space and i and at the same time like there's lots of people out there who probably think that's a horrible idea right <laughs> because it's like sure. all of a sudden the, the entire cubicle is gonna be full of beanie babies and and stuff like that so there's some level of like checks and balances i'm sure that would still be appropriate but i i understand the desire that you guys have of making it more sticky for more people more of the time because that is the kind of thinking that actually elevates everybody that, that trickles up to the other concepts that you're talking about, where you're talking about better design for more people. Like we're talking about this idea of scale and the way that design can be applied to the workspace in this example, but so many other places as well. When architects can deploy something at scale to more people, it, it doesn't just elevate architecture and it doesn't just elevate the buildings. It elevates morale. It elevates mm-hmm. contribution to community. 
it elevates so many other things that are behavioral changes for the for the better that's w- much more beyond just that that space right the space is kind of like the lowest level of all of that but then it actually has way more uh outputs than than we necessarily give it credit for and so I, by giving it to more people and spreading it out more evenly um it makes a huge difference because you're impacting so many more people that have inputs into that system yeah look uh, for me, it became quite clear that I, I, I've, I don't want to, as I say, I, I was lucky enough in, in my professional career to, you know, do, do pretty well. And so I, I got to the point where I said, I, I want to do something that, let's say again, you know, 20 years from now, I can look back on and say, well, at least I tried, at least I tried to do something different. And I, I just got you know, like you go, you go to conferences and you hear people talk and within our, specifically within architecture. And it's like, oh, you know, a really small percentage of buildings are actually done by architects. And this is such a travesty, but nobody really wants to understand why, mm-hmm. right? Like nobody really wants to understand why they just a want lot more of, for more sake, right? They just want, they're just like, oh, like we should pass laws that require, like, no, no, like you just, you know, the days where like, again, the model of architecture today it presupposes like it doesn't even understand globalization, right? So like when I can go to, I don't know, hire an architecture studio in Chile for a 10th of the cost, who by the way, it may also be a lot better mm. because they do amazing work over there. Like, it's like, sure, I still need a, an executive architect here, but like we, we can't complain about sort of, how things are or they aren't or whatever, and then do nothing about it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, look, right now, everybody's busy, and so there's probably little, very little complaint, but a few years ago, this wasn't the case. And so what, what we say is quite simple, is to say, look, there's a reason why home builders take the same design and repeat it over and over again. It's because it sells. And because it comes in at the right, at sort of roughly the right price, and because it's made out of these sort of very simple systemic components that can be found anywhere from Arizona to New York to Washington. Predictability and any, all the way and down. Any, right. And any <laughs> local GC can do it. So the only thing you're changing is maybe the size of the heating system or maybe some insulation. That's it. Everything else is pretty like just like we hate on it because it's like, oh, sameness. There's no soul to it. Sure. But how are we going to house and how are we going to provide healthy work environments and healthy play environments and healthy, you know, third spaces to the 10 billion people that we have in the world if we're just doing one at a time? Like, it's just not, it's just not going to be the case. And how, are you really going to, and how are you really going to address actual significant climate issues if it takes you five years to do one building at a time, right? And so, like, it, it's like we have 2030 objectives that, requires us, that require us to retrofit many millions of square feet in our existing cities today. If we don't templatize really great solutions, never make it. we're just never going to make it. Yeah. We're never going to make it. And we sit here and I have these conversations with my friends and I have friends who literally are just like talking about like climate and sustainability and all these kinds of things. And then they go into their day jobs and they're architects or engineers. They go into their day jobs and they're working on projects that they know will not open until 2027 or 2028 or 2029. And they're making those decisions today. I was like, okay, so cool. So you're going to be, you and your team of 50 are working on this thing for the next six years, seven years, eight mm-hmm. years. That's one building. Right. Right. And it might be an amazing building, but it's still just that one building. Right. And so, and so 
We're really fascinated by this problem of scale. We're really fascinated by this problem of accessibility. I, I think that we need to, we, again, we need to make what we all do more accessible to people. And right now we are prohibitively expensive when it comes to the day-to-day user. Yeah. So the people who work for developers, the people who work for large, say, boards and museums or school districts, or they work for the government, great, keep doing that. Right. But the rest of the market is still going to try to figure itself out in whatever way they can. And, and really, we feel like that's our opportunity to go address a product market fit in that specific market. Yeah, it's interesting thinking about levels of access to expertise. And, and like, I think, I think the, you know, the big idea with architects wanting to have more effect on the environment is because they understand how people interact with space. I, I hope that's the intent there to want to have the desire to interact with more of it and to have mm. more. I don't, I, I don't necessarily want to say control, but you know what I mean? Like they, but I think a lot of times it isn't, it's, it's more about just feeding the machine and paying the bills. And, and just because of that kind of exclusiveness, like we've got this information and we know the best. I think that that is probably more the case uh, because I honestly, the answer is what you're talking about. It's like, flexible volumes that you can mm. modify over time. Every I worked in the public sector. I did schools. I did lots of different programmatic type spaces in schools. You know what the answer always was? Was do less. Make mm. it a space that's flexible over time. And that was just a trend that you saw because it's like, we need this space. What do you need it for? We don't know yet, right? right. Like the school's right. five years out. We don't know what we're going to, we don't even know what we're going to put in it make it so that it can work for lots of different intended uses. And that works for a classroom as much as it works for a multi-purpose room, as much as it works for a media lab, as much as it works for a STEM hub, like a community space. And and it's really interesting to think like, okay, so an architect's real job is to come up with the most flexible space possible so that the users have agency to make it what they need it as often as they need to make it what they need it to be. That's a That's very exactly different right. model than what we were taught in school, <laughs> right? That's exactly right. Built for purpose today, that purpose is to build for flexibility. Mm-hmm. And it's going to change. It's going to change floor to floor heights. It's going to change um, uh, column bay uh, sizing. It's going to change. Like, and it's going to change all these things, honestly, because it's, it's cheaper for us to do it this way, right? right. It, like the... The, the architect who does core and shell will continue to do core and shell. Like if, if anything, the core and shell becomes more important because it has to be a little bit more flexible. It's, mm-hmm. it's almost like the central nervous system that allows all of the, all of the loading, all of the tenant spaces to be different kinds of things. So the, anybody who engages in interiors and in commercial interiors specifically understands the speed of change and the rate of change. And so for those folks, this has been the way the MO for quite a bit of time. And, but we always find ourselves sort of like almost fighting with the base building in a way. It's mm-hmm. like, no, it should just be really beautiful views, just enough clear height to do what we need to do. Really amazing natural light access, you know, like all of those kinds of things are still there. Uh, but then the interiors, yes, the interiors just need to be as, as unencumbered as possible, mostly because we just simply don't know and can't guess and shouldn't guess what's going to come down the line because whatever guess we make will be demolished, will be wrong, will be demolished and will be another few thousand pounds that end up in a, in a dump somewhere that could have gone somewhere else and, and hundreds or thousands, if not millions of dollars, by the way, that also end up in that dump. And so 
we want to be sustainable. We want to be, we want to think about the world in that way. We want to be more responsible for what we put out into the world. We want to be, we want to think about end of life. We want to think about going to pick up whatever we deployed. Yes, of course we want to do all of those things. And it all starts with simply just deploy less, build less, build less, make it smarter, make it simpler, make it designed for reuse. And we're, and by the way, we're going to get a lot of things wrong in this Mm -hmm. journey. I'm sure of it. No, no, no. You have all the answers right now. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, you know, technically there's 20 years worth of work here to figure a lot of this stuff out. Um, And so, and we know that, but it's an amazing and fun journey to get on because it, it like it creates a framework for every customer engagement we have. We have a framework that gives us the answers. Should we save this? Of course. <laughs> right, right. Should we move this? Of course not. Like it's just like the list goes down, and it's like we're saving you money. We're creating a sticky a sticky relationship because we've saved you a bunch of money while still making a great space. Oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, fantastic. And the experience of working through that with you is probably in the net positive side of things too, right? Which also helps with the stickiness. Well, we like to think so. And I think that that's, that's obviously where like the rubber hits the road. Like we have to prove ourselves where, you know, we're only a year old, but let me put it this way. We, we engage with a, this is anecdotal, but we engaged with a, a landlord recently and we said, I'll give credit to Lance. Lance said, Hey, I think we can keep most of the uh, most of the duck runs in place. Not even thinking about it, we were just doing a walkthrough, and we then got an email back from the project manager that worked for this landlord, and she said, "It is so rare to hear <laughs> somebody recommend that we keep something." Yeah, we really like your approach, um, and 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 and. And honestly, that was probably the reason why we ended up closing that deal is because mm. like now we're working on two of their spaces as opposed to just one. And, awesome. and, and, you know, and Lance is trying, you know, we're trying to like actually help them decommission spaces properly before we go to make changes. And so if they have, you know, like ACT ceilings or, or, or lighting or light bulbs and all these kinds of like, so we're like, Hey, we're going to help you sort of send this to either the right recycling center or the right place so that it just doesn't end up in a dump. And they, and they love that not because Again, not just because of the altruistic side of it, which is significant, but also because all of these landlords also have ESG requirements. They also want to, like, they have responsibility to their own investors and say, hey, we we also want to measure our carbon footprint. We also have to do this stuff. And they're sitting on millions of square feet. Yeah. Right? So they know that they're large, you know, carbon footprints. And so how can they do things better? And and, and so it it's surprising because a lot of, I think a lot of people out there speak a big game in terms of sustainability, but when it comes down to it, it mostly, it's mostly surrounds sort of new build and new technologies. We're saying, cool, that's great. But there's thousands of little renovations and transactions and like, there's a lot of building stock out there. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff happening in existing buildings. Right. And we, you know, the, the, the start of our pitch deck says our road to a decarbonized future is through our existing building stock. That's it. Because we're only going to build between now and 2050 in Western cities, we're only going to build a few thousand buildings. So what, but we're going to renovate millions of them. Right. So, so that's why we're going after that sector. Well, I, I, I'd love to wrap up and give you the opportunity to tell people where they can find out more about what you guys are doing and, and where they can follow you online. Sure. I'm easy to find. Um, I'm, I'm uh, probably most active on Twitter at FedEnegro, which is F-E-D-E-N-E-G-R-O. Kanoa, our company, you can also find us on, on Twitter at TryKanoa or at Kanoa.Supply. 
online and uh, or we're on LinkedIn at Kanoa. So reach us any of those ways where we're, we're easy to find. I'll put all those links in the notes for this show so people don't have to remember all that, but it's always great to, to hear it uh, as well so that people get the, get it in their brain. I, I really appreciate you taking the time fed to talk to me today. And I, you didn't, you never said the word, but I kept thinking of it. You're definitely trying to leave a legacy. I think that you're looking at the long game. You're trying to find something important. And I think you understand that this is going to take generations to fix a lot of these problems. So let's get it started on the right foot. And I really appreciate that long-term view. I think it's super important. And I wish, I wish we could see more of that. So, so kudos to you for, for putting it out there. And I appreciate your story and everything that you're doing to, to actually make that happen. Well, thank, thank you for, for that. It means a lot. I, I'll say this. I absolutely love architecture and I love what we do. And I, I'm mostly driven by how much I want to <laughs> continue to sort of engage in it and, 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 and how impactful it can be for others and, and how fulfilling it can be for us who, who do it. I think that I'm, I'm a big, 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 big believer that architecture is renaissance and, and like the new generations that are coming up are going to make it much better than, than whatever we had in the 20th century. And, and I'm just excited. And so yeah. whatever we can do, whatever we can do to, you know, push us forward, even a few inches. I, I, I mean, that's why we do it. Otherwise, you know, we could all be keeping our old day jobs and, <laughs> and doing that. Well, I'm glad you had this inflection point and uh, I'm super happy with, with what you guys are doing. It's really fun to watch what you guys are up to at Kanoa and the team that you've built. So, so again, kudos to you and uh, for having the vision and for taking that leap to make it happen. Thanks for being on the show today. Amazing. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Troxel Podcast. And once again, I would like to thank Arc IT for sponsoring this episode. Visit their website at getarcit, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com. Thank you to Twinmotion for their support of this episode of Troxel Podcast. You can visit twinmotion.link slash T-R-X-L, or I've made it easy for you. Just click the link in the show notes and download your copy of Twinmotion for free. This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gabledmedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E Troxel. Talk to you soon.